Hello, this is Kevin Thompson, and I am pleased to welcome you all to the Davis McGrath LLC IP webinar series. Uh, today's for October 5th, 2011 is on the topic of copyright basics. And uh, I'd like to uh, let people know that uh, the recording and slides will be posted at our blog at uh, the address shown there on your screen. And there you can also sign up for a webinar mailing list. Our next webinar is coming up on November 2nd, 2011. Uh, again, from 12 to 12.30 on the common, uh, topic of common trademark application problems. Uh, the, the blog also has recording from our prior webinars as well. So today we're going to go for about 30 minutes, and uh, we're going to cover a topic that is near and dear to my heart, uh, which is copyright, uh, which is a, a rather interesting area of intellectual property, and it's one that a lot of people think that they understand, but they don't necessarily know all the nuances or uh, they may not have a, a familiarity enough with some of the problems that can arise. So today we're going to go through some basics and uh, please feel free at any point uh, if you have questions uh, to please ask them through the, the webinar service. Um, that's, what it, that's what it's here for. And uh, we'll also have time at the end for questions as well. Uh, so today we're going to cover in this 30 minutes what is copyright, uh, when does copyright exist, do I need to register, what are the benefits, uh, what is copyright infringement, uh, what are the damages, and then I'll, at the end I'm going to cover with how to deal with online infringements. So uh, the C in a circle is the copyright symbol, you know, which is uh, differentiated from other symbols such as R in a circle, which is for registered trademark. Um, uh, C in a circle uh, should be applied uh, as a notice, uh, but it's not a requirement. You don't have to uh, let people know that you have, have a copyright. Uh, it's so certainly beneficial and it puts people on notice of your rights, but uh, under a current law it's no longer a requirement. So what is copyright? And the statutory definition is that copyright protects original works of authorship that are fixed in a tangible medium of expression. So what does that mean? Uh, original works of authorship, generally that means that uh, it's something that took a modicum of creativity to create, uh, such that um, it, it, it's original, but it's not necessarily uh, the only uh, version of the work. Uh, Let's say, for example, you have uh, two, photogra uh, two photographers taking pictures that are side-by-side side of the same event. Uh, they each could have original works of the same uh, piece uh, because they are uh, you know, each independently creating their individual work. The second element is fixed. And fixed, in this context, means that it's something that is in a... Uh, a medium such that people can uh, come back and see uh, what's going on. Uh, say, for example, uh, a, a computer file uh, can record uh, a Microsoft uh, Microsoft Word file, for example, could could record uh, somebody's um, original composition, and in that case that is fixed. It's, it's recorded in a series of ones and zeros, which can then be later uh, recovered back. 
uh, fixed could also mean uh, written in chalk on a, on a sidewalk or uh, painted on a side of a building. Uh, all that matters is it just needs to be in a, in a way that it can be uh, seen and, and brought back. And then a tangible medium of expression uh, means, again, uh, some along the lines we were talking about fixed, uh, such that uh, uh, it, it can be uh, seen or perceived, such as uh, the uh, word file or the painting, uh, things along those lines. The, the current terms, and notice I say current because uh, uh, the, the lobbyists are always looking for ways to extend these, uh, but uh, the, the term is 70 years from the death of the author, and if it's a work made for hire, uh, the term, or, or other corporate work, the term is 95 years from publication or 120 years from creation, whichever is shorter. So what's not copyrightable? And I always like to, whenever I give this sort of presentation, to try to find a recent case to uh, sort of explain this, but uh, ideas, methods, or systems are the big things that are not copyrightable. Neither are facts. Um, and you also can't register uh, titles, names, short phrases, slogans, or just generally common information. And also public domain works such as uh, U.S. government works also are not copyrightable. And it's important to note here that copyright protects the expression and not the ideas themselves. So uh, I, like I said, I always try to find a, a recent case. There's, a, there's one called DeToco versus Rick Riordan and Disney and 20th Century Fox, which is just decided on September 20th of this year. It's a case out of the Southern District of uh, New York. And uh, I'm going to post on the website uh, a link to the case. And this is a uh, case involving, uh, well, the defendants are Rick Riordan, uh, who wrote the Percy Jackson and the Olympian series of books. Uh, the one, The Lightning Thief, uh, which the first book was made into a movie recently. And so the authors uh, of a similar series, uh, the Totokos, uh, who had written a book called The Hero Perseus and Atlas's Revenge, uh, had written, uh, written those, uh, sued, uh, claiming that uh, Riordan's uh, later series were too similar uh, to his copyrighted works. And... Uh, this one's sort of interesting in the fact that uh, Riordan didn't uh, defend on, on the basis that he never had access to these particular works. Instead, uh, what he said was that uh, the, uh, the, the works were simply uh, not substantially similar enough for there to be an, uh, an infringement. And... In this case, uh, just to briefly explain, uh, both series involved uh, the concept of having a hero. Uh, one was uh, named Percy and the other one is Perseus. Uh, in, they interact with Greek gods. And so you can certainly understand why Detoko thought that there may be infringement. But in this case, the court looks at it and says, what are the protectable elements here? And here, the idea of of having uh, a youth who uh, was involved uh, with with the Greek gods, uh, and that th that just mere idea was not not protectable, 
and there were enough substantial differences uh, between the two, uh, I certainly would recommend reading the case. And like I said, uh, the link to the case will be uh, up on the, on the website shortly. So when does copyright exist? And under current law, copyright exists from the moment of creation. And a lot of people don't really understand that. They think that perhaps copyright uh, is something that they need to register. And that's, uh, that's certainly uh, true that you get additional benefits. And we'll be talking about those later on. But copyright exists from the moment of creation under current law. And for older works, uh, the answer may be different. Now, the copyright holder under law gets certain rights that they are able to do with, with their work. The first is the right to reproduce the work. Uh, the second is the right to prepare derivative works. And uh, a derivative work is, is a work that's based on, on, the, on the original. Um, the next is the right to distribute copies. Uh, then there's the right to perform the work publicly. And then the next major one is the right to display the work publicly. Uh, there is a sound recording right that's additional to these, uh, which is the right to perform the work publicly by means of a digi digital audio transmission, uh, but that doesn't apply to most people. So those are essentially the five major rights plus that sixth one, uh, the right to reproduce, derivative works, copies, perform, and display. And uh, this will come up later uh, when we're talking about what's an infringement. So who is the owner? Normally, it's the author of the work that's the owner, unless those rights are assigned to another. Now, the owner of a physical copy uh, does not normally own the copyright to the work itself, and that's an important distinction. You may own a book, but you likely don't own the copyright to that book. You may have uh, the right to uh, you know, keep your copy and to and to use it, but you don't have the right to take your copy of of the book and uh, reproduce it or uh, publicly display it. Uh, it's it's simply uh, not uh, not within the bundle of rights that you got when you purchased your book. Now, there's a special situation that often comes up, and that is works made for hire. And this normally comes up in two ways. The first is copyright in works that are prepared by employees now during the scope of their employment. And uh, under the first prong of the work made for hire section, uh, these works are presumptively owned by their employers because these are, done, these are works that are prepared during, during their jobs. However, the second is the one that comes up most often. And that is uh, you want to hire somebody who is an independent contractor to create something for you, say perhaps a website or things like that. And in that case, uh, there are certain types of works uh, which can uh, become essentially a work made for hire and therefore owned by the copyright, well, by, by, by the person requesting it. Um, and but the contract has to specifically stay that, and it has to be a signed written contract. Um, now, a, a website is is one of those particular examples that may or may not uh, qualify, and actually likely won't. So in that case, uh, what the person would need to do if they really wanted to own the copyright to that particular work is they would need to have have an assignment prepared. Uh, 
a lot of people also have uh, works made for hire agreements uh, which take what we call a belt and suspenders approach in which uh, they say that this is intended to be a work made for hire but if it should ever be determined not to be a work made for hire then this also operates as an assignment and that's sort of a good practice. Another question that comes up a lot is, do I need to register my copyrights to have protection? And the answer is no, not under current law. But there are certainly advantages to federal registration. And now, under older law, registration was a prerequisite to protection. Uh, but uh, under current law, as we said before, copyright exists from the moment of creation. So uh, you have a copyright, but you won't be able to sue in federal court unless you get a registration and you may or may not be entitled to attorney's fees or statutory damages unless you have a registration. Uh, we just covered that. Uh, what benefits are there to registration? Uh, registration is necessary before suit can be filed and then again that statutory damages and attorney's fees. Um, now there are certainly uh, some special uh, circumstances that come up especially for um, uh, publishers and that is a compilation and that is a work formed by the collection and assembling of pre-existing materials and in order for a, a compilation to be protected that work must be selected coordinated or arranged in such a way that the resulting work as a whole constitutes an original work of authorship and this is, is interesting because when you have copyright in a compilation, it's protectable only to the degree of originality that's that's expressed there. Uh, there's an old trade, uh, sorry, copyright doctrine called the sweat of the brow, which rewarded uh, people for their efforts in preparing the compilation, and that's no longer enough. There's there's a great case um, from back in the day involving uh, a telephone directory called the Feist case. And in that case, what had happened was a uh, two uh, telephone companies sued each other because one had simply copied the other the other's telephone directory, and they tried to claim that they had copyright in the compilation in in creating the um, the, the the telephone directory. And in this case, uh, it actually went all the way up to the Supreme Court. What they what the the court said was that the sweat of the brow in creating uh, this telephone directory was not enough. There was no degree of originality in simply putting forth an alphabetical list of names, uh, address, and telephone numbers. Another situation which comes up a lot is called derivative works. And a derivative work is, is a work which is based upon one or more already existing work. And it's required to transform or change a pre-existing work. And it can be independently copyrightable if it is original work of authorship and if the underlying material was used with permission. And the scope of protection for a derivative work is, is limited and that it only covers what is added or changed. And uh, only the copyright owner can authorize the derivative work to be made. Um, 
one thing that th with this comes up a lot is a, a website. Uh, people may not realize that uh, the, you know copyright will will protect uh, the look and feel and the content of their website, but they may not realize that every time they update uh, the website, it's considered a derivative work, and uh, they they. Uh, likely should uh, register each uh, significant change to that uh, derivative work. So how do I register my works? Uh, here's a screenshot of the uh, Copyright Office website, uh, which is uh, very easily found at copyright.gov, G-O-V. And uh, this is a, a fairly straightforward. Uh, the, the Copyright Office has gotten a lot better in, in providing their materials. They, like the Trademark Office, they've certainly tried to do things online. Uh, they've got a, a great system where you can search uh, um, prior registrations and documents relating to it, such as assignments. Uh, they've got an online system where you can register your work. And uh, that works fairly well, uh, certainly not as smoothly as the, the way the uh, trademark office systems work, uh, but they're certainly, uh, you know, better than the not. Um, and we'll talk about this a little bit in terms of fees, uh, but uh, certainly the copyright office wants to encourage you to use their online system. So it's currently cheaper to file online than it is on paper, uh, but if you still want to file on paper, you certainly can at a higher fee. Um, now, uh, we talked about this briefly, uh, about the Copyright Office website. Uh, in addition to uh, what I talked about prior to that, I wanted to let people know that they have a great section of uh, circulars, uh, which can be found, I am um, uh, currently pointing the mouse over here to the circulars and brochures section. Uh, and from, from that section of the website, what you can able to do is uh, get information on uh, particular um, topics of interest. So if you have a real question about what it takes to record an assignment, uh, you can look at that there. Uh, if you have questions about what it takes to, to record a particular kind of work, uh, likely they have a, a circular or a brochure explaining that particular issue. Uh, as we said before, it's currently cheaper to file online. It's currently $35 to use the online system. Uh, if you need to use the paper forms, uh, currently they cost $65. And uh, I've got the link there for the full list of fees. Now, we're going to switch now to the next major topic, uh, which is uh, the area of copyright infringement. So if anybody has any questions of uh, what we've gone over already, uh, now would be a good time. Uh, otherwise, uh, we'll just go ahead and, and launch into copyright infringement. Now, as we said before, there are certain rights uh, that come with having a copyright. And what, uh, as we may recall, is such as the right to perform the work publicly, the right to have copies made, the right to prepare derivative works, etc. And in order for a work to be an infringement, what's uh, required is an action by someone who's not the owner that usurps or interferes uh, with one or more of those exclusive rights. So in order to be an infringement, you have to be able to point to a specific right that's granted under the Copyright Act that has been usurped or interfered with. Now, if you're able to prove infringement, 
you're able to get certain things such as injunctive relief. Uh, you can get a court to uh, to rule uh, that uh, whatever you you want, like the publication, has to stop. Uh, you can have uh, infringing works uh, impounded or destroyed. You can get compensation in the terms of damages and profits uh, from the infringer. And uh, in certain circumstances, you can get costs and attorney's fees if, if you have a registration that qualifies for that. Um, you usually have to have a registration in place before the infringement occurs uh, or within three months of publication for that to happen. And uh, another um, option, if you don't, because to be perfectly honest, uh, a lot of copyrighted work, it's really difficult to prove, you know, actual damages and profits. So the law is designed uh, to punish infringers by setting up a regime of called statutory damages. And these range, uh, the normal, are between $750 and the low end of $30,000. And uh, the actual amount is uh, determined by the trier of fact, which could be a judge, but it's more likely often a jury. And in cases of willful infringement, where you can prove that uh, the infringement was done willfully, uh, those damages can be increased up to $150,000 per act of infringement. Uh, there's another doctrine of innocent infringement, where you truly didn't, didn't realize that uh, what you're doing was an infringement, and the judge agrees, uh, or the trier of fact agrees, that uh, it was an innocent infringement. Uh, that can lower the statutory damages down to $200 per act. Now, there are uh, certainly defenses uh, to infringement claims, and we're going to go through some of them here. I've got a full list of them here. Um, it's important to note that innocent infringement is not a defense. Uh, just because you didn't mean to doesn't mean uh, that you're off the hook. It just, mean, it just reduces the amount of damages. Um, but the important ones we're going to talk about here are fair use and parity. Um, fair use is a, a doctrine uh, which comes up a lot, and it's certainly one that is, is very often misunderstood. And what a lot of people don't realize is that there is a, a four-factor test that, that courts look at to determine whether or not something is a fair use. But uh, before that, what they really don't realize is that it's a defense to infringement. And so, if, if you make, make the claim, well, it was, I thought it was a fair use, and the judge or the trier of fact d disagrees, you're still going to be liable for that infringement. So uh, what they look at is the uh, first is the purpose and character of the use, uh, the nature of the copyrighted work, the amount and substantiality of the portion used, and then the effect of the use on the market for the copyrighted work. And the purpose and character of the use is often uh, looked at, uh, you know, is this a, a commercial use uh, that, that's, that's the infringement? Uh, so uh, is this going to affect the market for the copyrighted work? Uh, what is the nature of it? Is it, uh, um, uh, and then importantly, is, is the amount and substantiality of the portion used? Uh, there's a great case uh, involving uh, the publication of uh, Gerald Ford's biography in which uh, it was deemed to be copyright infringement for uh, a reviewer to quote from the, uh, the, the it's essentially the, the, the key portion of uh, the um, 
the, the Gerald Ford biography in which he's talking about uh, the pardoning of President Nixon. And uh, in that case, the amount and the substantiality the portion used was deemed to be significant enough uh, that it you know, had a significant effect on the market for the work and was deemed to be an infringement. Now, it's important to try to avoid copyright claims when you're using content, uh, especially things you might find out on the Internet. Uh, one thing that uh, comes up a lot uh, is uh, people, you know, want to use uh, images uh, for presentations or so forth. And, you know, they see it and they think it's out on the Internet and it's something that they can just take. And that's simply not true, uh, at least not for the great majority of things that are out there. Um, it's important to try to track down who the owner is, and uh, you can uh, use the copyright database to try to look up things if it's a registered work, or uh, usually there's enough information uh, or metadata about what it is that you're trying to copy that you can try to figure out who to request permission from. Um, but it's also important to note that not all works require permission. Uh, so, for example, um, there is a, a doctrine called the Creative Commons license, uh, which is uh, I, I certainly something that I would recommend people check out. It's uh, more information is at creativecommons.org, and a lot of the works that I publish uh, on the web are, are done on a Creative Commons license, in which I allow uh, the uh, people to share uh, things that I, I put out on the internet, and uh, with certain restrictions, such as they have to uh, attribute them back to me, and uh, they're not allowed to uh, make substantive changes to to what I, I put out, uh, but uh, they are um, available and, and, and ready for use. And uh, there's more information there. Uh, we will be doing a, a webinar on copyright and creative commons as one of our upcoming webinars. Now is a good time again to switch topics here um, it, it slightly. We're still talking about infringements, but uh, we want to talk about cer certain ways of, of handling online infringements. And uh, the biggest is a uh, way to handle things is under the, what's called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, which is now codified as, as part of uh, the uh, regular copyright law. But people still talk about the DMCA uh, and its provisions. Uh, as if it was something separate, but truly it is part of the Copyright Act. Um, so we're going to cover briefly what is it, what's a notice, and uh, what are the steps involved to getting things removed, and, and you know what things that you should do uh, if you don't like the results. Uh, the D Digital Millennium Copyright Act is Section 512 of the Copyright Act, and it essentially provides that an online service provider, uh, such as a, a website host or uh, or other content provider uh, has a safe harbor from liability for the hosting of infringing content if it complies with takedown notices that are sent from owners. And uh, an important step in this process is the OSP is required to designate an agent for service of these notices. Um, a lot of people think that they can just because they're a service provider, they can uh, take advantage of the DMCA, uh, and that's simply not true. Uh, they need to designate an agent in the copyright office. Uh, there is a procedure and a cost for doing so. Um, and to qualify, 
uh, for the safe harbor, the service provider must not have actual knowledge of the infringement, must not receive direct financial benefit, and must act quickly to improve, remove the infringement once there is notice. Um, the steps here are, are given for uh, uh, the format for a DMCA notice. You're required to have a signature, or uh, physical or electronic, identify the work, identify where it is, and contact information. And then you have to make a statement that the complaining party has a good faith belief that the user is not authorized by the owner, and that that notice is accurate. So provided that you, you provide a proper notice, uh, the notice is given, the service provider is then required to take the material down and then notify the user who uploaded the material. Uh, if taken down wrongly, uh, that user can provide a counter notice. Uh, it's similar to a regular notice, uh, plus a statement that they will consent to jurisdiction in federal court. And then, uh, if they do provide the counter notice and uh, the um, uh, the complainer uh, doesn't actually file suit to prevent uh, the, the information from going back up. Uh, the material should be put back up by the online service provider. Um, now, why should someone submit a counter notice? Uh, the most common use uh, reason is fair use or commentary. Um, perhaps the notifier is not the owner or agent for the uh, infringing work because only the copyright owner or their agent can complain or misidentification of the infringing work. Um, there was a dispute in uh, the last set of presidential elections where uh, the um, content for the, uh, I believe it was uh, the McCain campaign were being taken down under uh, a DMCA takedown notices and uh, you know simply they were complaining that the, the timeline you know with the 10 to 14 days uh, before the material could be put back up uh, because you know their stuff was being uh, falsely uh, accused uh, was not uh, timely enough for them, and uh, you know the, the essentially uh, you know they were told tough. It's uh, you know it, it, this is what the statute provides, and uh, you know applies to everybody, including presidential campaigns. So uh, th that's a good brief overview, and it's certainly something what I'd call basics. Uh, you know, I could go on for for hours talking about copyright. It's, uh, it's a certainly a, a, a as I've said before, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and uh, it's something that uh, I, I truly enjoy helping people with. Uh, so, um, uh, if there's any questions, uh, now would be a good time. Well, I don't see anything currently showing up, uh, so I, hopefully it means I've been th relatively thorough. Um, what I'd uh, uh, suggest is uh, people check out, as I've said before, our uh, blog at uh, blog.davismcgrath.com slash webinars, in which we'll be posting the recording for today's session. And uh, we will, um, I'll also be posting a link to the uh, DeToco case that I talked about, and also be posting up copies of my slides. So um, I certainly want to thank everybody for, for attending. And again, our next seminar uh, webinar will be coming up on November 2nd on the topic of common trademark application problems. So thank you again for, for, for attending.